Experience is the mother of knowledge. This quote has been attributed to people from Miguel de Cervantes to Leonardo da Vinci. I'm not entirely sure who actually said those words. I just know that they were quoted in A Wrinkle in Time by Mrs. Who. And it must have stayed with me all these years because this is part of the inner compass that I use. My experience is what allows me to feel in my bones a sense of validity, of truth, of resonance. And you can tell when you're in the presence of somebody who has that kind of authority, the kind of authority that comes from embodied experience and from the courage to walk away from institutional belonging or cultural belonging when that belonging threatens the alignment of one's sense of self and soul and body. These are the prophets, the mystics, the artists who stand at the edge of society and say, nope, not this, we can do better. They are the ones who invite us into letting go of what we think we know to make room for what could be, not just individually, but collectively as a society. Today's guest, Bronte Velez, is such a person. Bronte's work and rest is guided by the call that black wellness is the antithesis to state violence, a quote by Mark Anthony Johnson. As a black Latinx transdisciplinary artist, designer, trickster, and wake worker, their eco-social art praxis lives at the intersections of black feminist placemaking and prophetic community traditions, environmental justice, and death doulaship. They embody this commitment of attending to black health, imagination, commemorative justice, and hospicing systems of oppression through serving as a creative director to Lead to Life Design Collective, educator for ancestral art skills and nature connection at Weaving Earth, and quotidian black queer life making ever committed to humor and liberation, ever marked by grief at the distance made between us and all of life. Now, if this little introduction and bio doesn't already give you a sense of the magnitude of the spirits that powerfully channel through Bronte Velez, you will certainly get that from this conversation. In fact, our conversation was so out of time, space, place, and it was so full of magic and power and a spell of healing and possibility right in the middle of a week that was already filled with violence. Last week, the shooting that took place in the Brooklyn subways, as well as the revelation of a videotape that demonstrated yet again the proliferation of state violence against yet another unarmed black man. In this case, Patrick Leoya, here in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I live. The conversation was such a powerful transmission, it simply couldn't be messed with. So I've decided to air it in its entirety in two parts so that you can take the time to truly digest and metabolize this conversation into your body. So let's jump right into part one of this conversation with Bronte Velez on season two, episode six of Unknowing Podcast. Bronte, thank you so much for coming on the show, for spending some time with me, 
on your morning time, my afternoon. And I always like to begin by asking about the maps that are handed to us and how they shape the initial trajectory of our journey, this map, these markers. So I want to ask you, what was the map that you were given growing up to make sense of your world? Like what made up those parameters, those markers, or even the page itself? Mm. Thank you for that beautiful question. The original map I was given was very sprawled out, thinking about the design of Atlanta. Um, I was accustomed to long walks to the MARTA bus, um, the public transportation system there, and a lot of time to get to, it took a lot of time to get to each place. There wasn't like a mm -hmm. quick way to really get anywhere. Um, I love that kind of lethargy of the South uh, and a slower pace. There was also a lot of harm to that design um, and environment of being sprawled out, which I think time also makes more room for harm to enter in some ways um, when it's not protected and it's not like intentionally slow. Like I think the design of Atlanta uh, was meant for particularly white and upper class folks to, to thrive and then to relegate Black folks and other communities um, outside of those epicenters. So I think about that a lot. I think about growing up, how we repped our police zones. Um, so I grew up knowing that I lived in zone six. I didn't know that that, was a, that meant a police district. Um, or where that they were patrolling, but we repped where we were policed. And other maps I think of are, yesterday I was thinking about how my mom would drive us through this place called Sandstone Estates, where we would go to open houses for big ass houses that we couldn't afford uh, and go tour these places and like, dream of these, you know, big ass homes we would never live in, but we often did that. Um, so those are like the critical geography and, and capitalist acupuncture points. I remember as a like um, map I didn't agree to and was kind of born into. Um, and then I think of these other guideposts with my father being a Christian rap artist and growing up around sanctify hip hop <laughs> and growing up in radio and music and festivals and performance um, that I'm so grateful for, th for that guide because it's influenced so much of my life. Mm. I feel the... Yeah, the choreography and the cartography of the church space as a 
as a point of departure for me that really guided me and harmed me in other ways and, and others, but so grateful for, at its core, the spirit of unconditional love and compassion and ministry and fellowship and praise and worship that I receive from the church space. Uh, and finally, I'll just say growing up around the map of being supported as just getting to be around um, Black artists and Black teachers and Black cultural workers my entire life. There was never, that was never unfamiliar to me. Um, so I'm so grateful for being accompanied my entire life by friends I'm still so close with that we got to dance together and act together and write together and play and imagine and that we were protected with that imagination is still a significant guidepost for me and still a trail that I am following. Um, And there's so many other maps I'm thinking of like that. That's what brings me to like Atlanta as a place because my work is about place and the way place changes us and the way we change place. Um, so I, I feel to begin there, though, there are some abstractions and other things I could, could think about that that place in particular guided me. Yeah. I'm so struck by the layered articulation mm. of of how those different maps create kind of a harmonic whole in mm. the establishment of a more, mm. uh, a hunger for more, a longing for more, but also the idea that the moreness can be walked in and looked at and toured in and can be set before us mm. as something that can be achievable, built, created, and... Mm. Um, it's, it's so beautiful to listen to you describe that in your childhood. And I find it's useful to look back on these early maps to see when and how rupture can restore us to our own agency as explorers, as capable of being in that wild terrain without maps, as travelers on this path mm. of no arrival. Mm. But it helps to look back on these early maps to see how far unknowing can and will take us when we're courageous enough <laughs> to leap mm. off the edge of one map into something bigger. Mm. And so I want to ask you, was there a moment that you remember, a first rupture moment that you remember when you leapt off the edge of what you felt you knew into something more? Yeah, I think that there's not in this moment, a specific moment isn't coming, but there's a couple of moments that are connected to one another that I think created ruptures for me to make my departures. Uh, I think of the first time that I really began to, the first time that I feel like I caught the Holy Ghost in church of, as a child, of being in praise and worship as a dancer and um, feeling the state of ecstatic worship enter me and unadulterated praise enter. 
and the way that took me very deeply and the way that gave me so much trust in my own relationship to the divine as a child. And then I think about a moment where I'm on a church plane. Yes, I said the church plane, private plane. (laughs) (laughs) This is not a metaphor. (laughs) The church is plane with the insignia of the church on it, which I just learned was kind of designed after Star Trek. Um, (laughs) And I'm on the church. That is some next level shit right there. It's so next level. I'm on the church plane at 12 with the pastor's daughter who I'm best friends with. And we're going from Atlanta to Charlotte. And the pastor and his son are playing Madden NFL on two different screens. And this is like when iPods first came out. So there's all of these iPods. And like, I was just like, what is going on? And I remember an interiority and a witnessing and observation that I couldn't describe that I felt in conflict with. I remember feeling what, I remember feeling excited to be kind of in this elite experience as someone who hadn't, didn't have access to it, but was into wealth, but was in proximity to particularly black wealth. And then to just be quiet. I think of that little, my 12 year old self being quiet on the plane and observing this strange 45 minute plane ride to a place we could have driven to. And then I think about myself in the church, in the pulpit, where the pastors sat because my father was a pastor at the church. And I think of sitting in the pulpit where like the pastors uh, kind of entourages would sit or famous guests or government officials in the city, et cetera, would would come and be. um, And I think of my observation from that seat um, I think of a lot of that, those accumulations of just witnessing and being confused. Um, yeah, folks at the, the pastor preaching and learning, I think, the, I'm going to finish that sentence, pastor preaching and like folks coming to the altar, black folks coming to the altar and slamming money on the altar at other points, our family being the one that's brought to the altar and people are bringing money to the altar and uh, just weeping because it was so confusing. I don't even know if I knew me and my sister. I remember we were just crying so hard when people are bringing all of this money. And I don't know what we were really even, I think it was just a lot of energy because it was a mega church. So I don't know if we were even crying. Like we felt so grateful. It was just a lot of exposure. Um, And then I think about leaving my parents church. Um, 
and leaving the church that they were at and feeling not in alignment and making that decision at 16 to attend my own church. Uh, and that was a big decision. My father was no longer the youth pastor at the church and I didn't, he was the pastor of a Spanish speaking service. He's Puerto Rican. And it, he became like the kind of the Latino engagement guy <laughs> at the black church. Um, which I really hope wasn't like a, no, I don't, I was going to say where they try to diversify their income because I mean, this was an enterprise, you know, mm -hmm. this was an enterprise. Um, but yeah. I do believe there was a true desire to reach out to other communities, but um, yeah, I think of going to my own church, this place called Oxygen and seeing young people where I was, people were cool and like chill and like you weren't getting up and worshiping. And then seeing people, young people be in the corners with their hands up praising mm -hmm. um, and being like, we can do that. Like we don't have to wait till we're older to do that and like be in reverence. And there were so many problems with that church. And I'm no longer I no longer identify as a Christian, though I, I feel a lot of relationship to the ways Christianity has influenced me, but I'm not interested in Christian hegemony. Um, and then I think of at 17, this is my last point of rupture. I, I think of being in youth poetry and writing a poem called No Sound But The Wind, um, at, at 17, even though, yeah, after my dad had left the church and after a lot had come out about the church and after I had had significant dreams, prophetic dreams of things that were going on there that I had shared with my parents, uh, this bravery and courage as a 17-year-old to publicly speak to what it was like to be at this church in a way where I didn't have a language for capitalism at that time of what, that I didn't feel capitalism and spirit should be trying to, they just didn't seem like they could work together, like benevolent spirits. And I felt concerned about the ways people were being exploited in the name of the divine in terms of people who were tired and spent and tithing to a million dollar building who should really tithe to their damn selves you know like what are you what are you investing in what is the investment and what is the return <clears throat> and feeling and knowing, seeing my father be against the corruption and seeing my father demand uh, integrity and feeling the ways that he was sent on trips. Our family was sent literally on a trip when my dad was trying to be in integrity and being going and being sent to Florida 
to like a resort, all expenses paid. So my dad will shut up. (laughs) You know, these like really weird things. Um, And I feel that bravery where I felt myself exercise that stronghold that that institution had on me and and I called in my unmediated relationship to creator as a 17 year old. Mm -hmm. I remember really declaring that regardless of my departure, I was still loved. And that's so beautiful. I love thinking of that 17 year old with my little shaved side of my head, little baby gay. (laughs) Um, Saying that I was beloved in the eyes of God without this church. Yeah. And I feel like that was a rupture and it's a it's a signal I've been following. Um, still, because I finally can be in a, a trust and an agreement, even though it was very hard to not be witnessed by my family as someone who deeply had a relationship with God because I had a unique one and that my relationship to creator was happening through the earth and through my relationships and through my art practice. And um, I have a lot of compassion for my family's fundamentalism. And I think a lot about soteriology, the Uh, theology of salvation and what it is to store up your belief that there is another world that has gifts for you. There's another world. My mom would always say, well, I don't have my mansion here, but I have my mansion in heaven, reserved in heaven, you know? And so I have a lot of compassion for black and brown people who didn't receive don't receive glory and divinity on this plane. And so seek something elsewhere. And I think Mm -hmm. I am trying to continue to create those spaces and bring heaven here. Um, And and not even bring heaven here, support the attention and, and environments that safely encourage us to notice that we are in heaven and that we are also in hell um, and how to get further away from that. It's stunning to listen to you articulate these different ruptures because what I hear in them is the, the growing and mounting tension of a dissonance between reverence as institutional subjugation mm. and reverence as relationship, Mm. reverence as relationality and reciprocity Mm. and the cultivation of that um, sacred exchange and natural flow Mm. that's readily available. And so I want to touch on, you know, this moment when you felt your sovereignty in your own voice and your own embodied experience of the divine Mm. that gave you the courage to, you know, unknow the the belonging of the institutional Mm. version of belief, right? Mm. And there are are so many facets to your multivocal expression. Um, 
But I want to begin by asking about this moment of poetry and what you describe as your transdisciplinary art, which I just love, Mm. love that expression. Mm. So you had already named that music was a huge part of your life, Um, dance, choreography, and poetry. Mm. But it sounds, as I'm listening to you speak, as though this moment was sort of the reclamation of your own creative power, your own ability, like you just said, to to enliven the realization, the uh, recognition of the transfiguration of this planet as like, this is where divinity is. This is where all the potential Mm. is. So can you share about what the trajectory from that point into, you know, the next 10 years of your Mm. transdisciplinary expressions as a multivocal being? Yeah, thank you (laughs) What shapes did that take? Yeah, um, I'm so grateful for poetry and also youth-led spaces. I am so grateful for a dear friend, Natalie Cook, who assembled us as teens in Atlanta and created an organization called Atlanta Word Works, of which I was, LOL, a founding member of, like, as as children, you know, us going around and... Uh, with other friends, with another friend, Ayesha Sweeting, and raising money and doing these slams and doing our poems together and being 14 and 15 and trying to fundraise to get to Chicago for Brave New Voices Youth Poetry Slam. I think Natalie had seen it on HBO they had a special and then was like, yo, we gotta go. And I had seen Natalie perform in Atlanta when I was in seventh grade. And I was like, I have this poem I wrote. It was so bad, it was so bad. It was called AIDS. Why was I writing about that? Like, I had no relationship. It was an acronym where each letter was a different person's name. And I was trying to connect, it was a soap opera, it was just, but I, I see my heart in it. <laughs> but it was just yeah. like the poem was terrible. But she was so loving. Sorry, my headphone fell out. She was so loving. And um, yeah, that that belonging to experience youth poets from all over the world, literally all over the world, to be in their company and to learn so much from people's writing and poetry and language choices and performance and vulnerability because I think it was a place where we were encouraged to speak our truth and be in that and it was a safe place to be in our truth. It was a safe place to come out. It was a safe place to share about the trauma that you had gone through. Uh, There were some unfortunate things related to that where it was like, what's the worst thing I could talk about to get me points? I think there were some problems with like Mm -hmm. angsty teens all gathered. But there was also so much beauty. And I think that poetry, poetics deeply influences and deeply influenced the rest of my next 10 years. I still feel deeply informed by a poetic orientation. Um, And I think it is poetry that brought me into 
an attention to the land uh, that I didn't that I that wasn't so clear to me. I I didn't have I didn't grow up going out to be with the earth. I didn't grow up in a significant way like connecting with the earth. Um, and that wouldn't come until I was a dance teacher in Homestead, Florida with a group called Artists Striving to End Poverty. It was a big choice for me to uh, be preparing to be a professional dancer my entire life and so much energy going towards being a professional dancer, but having been told throughout my life that that's not a career and that's not something you, where where is the money? How are you going to do that? All of that. Even though I was in art school, even all, all of that, even though I'd seen so many people be successful, it was this idea that I had too many other, I could have a real career, quote unquote. Um, so I was also preparing a lot of my life to be a news anchor. And I wanted to just be a journalist and have my own show. My mom worked at CNN as an assistant, but I would go as much as I could after school and meet people and try and be around Anderson Cooper and like all of these folks to really like prepare myself for like basically being Oprah Winfrey. And we were actually in a poetry rehearsal and Natalie was coaching us and we were doing a poem that was commemorating young queer folks who had taken their lives and naming the calling in the church as and homophobia as responsible for these children's deaths and Natalie, we were we were reciting our poem that we wrote, and Natalie, it was a group piece. And Natalie was like, "Y'all sound like news anchors. Like you just have no, you just don't even care. Like you don't even have any relationship to what you're saying. It's just you've said it so many times. Just information." And that was an immediate moment to be like, "Oh my God, I've spent all this energy." going towards this idea for a career and it's not even what I actually want to do. So I had a little bit of time being a bit lost and was just trying to think about how do I go to college for free and will I get a dance scholarship? And I ended up getting a scholarship, a leadership scholarship called Posse to Brandeis University and yeah, I was at a dance competition and a dancer, Cindy Salgado, who would come choreograph at our studio in Atlanta, she was like, I heard you're not going to school for dance. This was just unheard of in the like, everyone, we were all preparing to be professional dancers. And I was like, I still want to dance. I just also want to be at the intersection of arts and peace building and Conflict transformation, that was the language I had for it at that time. And Brandeis had a program centered in art and peace building, and they had a peace and conflict studies program. And she said, you need to meet my partner. Um, and he was working with a collective called Artists Striving to End Poverty that came out of Juilliard that was thinking about the ways that impoverishment and class oppression 
deprives children from also creativity, just in the space Mm -hmm. to be creative. Mm -hmm. And so I reached out to him and he hooked me up with this dance teaching job in Homestead, Florida. And my time in Florida was in the Everglades. I would say that ecosystem deeply changed my path for the next coming years. Um, It was the summer that Trayvon Martin had been killed and it was the, we weren't far away at all from where he had been killed. And it was also the summer where George Zimmerman was on trial. And it was the first time I was around youth, children who were, uh, whose parents were migrant farm workers and noticing, just paying attention to like what we were eating there and like their parents growing so much food. And we were in an affordable housing community for folks who were migrant farm workers. And that was my first time also around older artists with a kind of political orientation to their work. So being in their company over that summer at 19 was deeply influential and collaborating with those students who were nine to 12 and doing work with theater and pedagogy of the oppressed and collaborating on this ritual performance that was, I didn't have the language for it then, but it was supporting safe passage for Trayvon's spirit. That was the performance that we were doing. And the children were just so amazing. It was like so so deep, our rehearsals and our space and our time together of, I remember this day where they went and we were gonna rehearse again and we just really talked about their own relationships to racism and internalized racism and things teachers had said to them. And I mean, they were babies and they they had already deeply experienced this. And we talked about food apartheid and food sovereignty. And then, and this was all new to me. This was all coming like while I was, you know, while I was with them, we were learning together and There was this moment where like one of them, this child who's now not a child, Dami Lola, he was embodying Trayvon. And I was not doing this in the way that I would have, how I would host this now. I was a child and um, wasn't making sure like, okay, now we're clearing this off. We're opening this, we're closing it. You know, I was creating a pretty intense field, Um, but luckily we all did it together and we're okay and safe. But there was this moment where I think also with children being closer to the beginning of their souls, where Dami Lola went and got his hoodie to like be in this, to go into his embodiment. And without speaking, we're in Florida, it's hot. (laughs) Other kids had jackets. They just went and got their little jackets (laughs) and they just put on their hoods. And they were in this trance state and bringing this baby's spirit as babies into safe passage. It was so beautiful. And I think think that was a seminal moment for me um, of 
there's so much I could say about my work and I, so I don't want to go through every year after that. But I think that moment was a seminal moment. Actually, I'm not going to say seminal. I just learned it came from um, semen. <laughs> so um, <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was a flowering moment for me. Um, it was a critical moment for me in that it, I think confirmed a prophetic orientation that I would, my work would be at the intersections of ritual storytelling and safe passage for our young black departed that were taken from us and this earth unjustly and too soon that that, that, that was my work as in death doulaship that it would come through that form and also protecting black children um, and supporting black children to be in art spaces in the ways that I was and uh, protecting their imaginations and also going to other, com like all ages to re-protect the child in us that wasn't protected um, and to fortify black imagination, black imaginative spaces and black dream spaces. Um, so I would say that from that point, it, that place in the Everglades, the swamp, uh, the attention that happened through that land. Yeah, just giving thanks for all of the Seminole and Miccosukee stewardship of those lands that, and fugitivity and marinage that assisted, like I know was imbued in that place that brought me into that attention and I would say my work has continued to be that across many forms from a senior thesis and my undergraduate around a prophetic future that basically is the work that I'm doing now with a book that had seeds in it um, and also went across time a like I think my time between just giving thanks for Czech Republic and Ecuador where I studied abroad um, because those lands and learning about the ways that artists were able to change the places they were in and being in the programs I was in across Czech Republic mm -hmm. and Ecuador were essential uh, points of nurturance for me on my journey of being in alternative study. I think those programs and all of the study I've experienced over my life has also brought me into my work as an educator and making sure that I support learning journeys that are alternative, that have expressions beyond the academic um, and that bring us into lived experience and practice. And I think all the things I've shared thus far about ministry and growing up in a devotional container have also come to my work with Lit to Life and ceremonial practice and uh, losing a friend to gun violence also brought me to my work. There's so much I could say, but I'll, I'll stop there for now. This concludes part one of my conversation with Bronte Velez on Unknowing Podcast on season two, episode six. In part two, we dive into Bronte's collaborative Led to Life in the melting of weapons and the creation of tools for planting, for healing, 
and the ongoing work and ministry that they have dedicated their lives to in creating rituals, to grieve, to create safe passage for the victims and the families of those who were killed in state violence. Part two of this conversation is available now on your favorite podcast player. You can always come back to it when you're ready or listen to right away.